It's a time of year, again, that I get a little cynical about, i be honest. It's, for me, it's bandwagon time of the year. Now, Major League Baseball is in, obviously, the last month and a half or so of the season. Lots of teams, just so you know, bunched in the standings. Everybody thinks they have a shot. And the stadiums are filling up for those teams who are close to the top. And, and I'm cynical because, you know, I've been a Reds fan the whole time. Not just when they were actually decent a year or two ago, but even this year when they're terrible. I still pull for them. And I know some of you have been Cardinal fans and, and, and you love the St. Louis Cardinals. You've been a long time. Not just because they've won the World Series a lot more than the Reds have recently. I know, you know, but ever. But... <laughs> But you've been a fan, and so it drives you nuts. I don't know about you, but it just drives me crazy, all these fans that all of a sudden, oh, now I'm cheering for this team or that. And whichever team happens to be winning, of course, that's the team that that everybody pulls for. And college football season is about to start, pro football season, and, of course, all the Kentucky football fans that you haven't been able to find with a a stick of dynamite and a pizza party in the recent years, they're all coming back out. Why? i got a new coach. It's a new era. And, of course, it'll be, you know, same story, different time, different coach, and all those bandwagon fans will fall off again and call for the firing of the coach. You know how it goes. And, and of course, during foot, pro football season, whoever happens to win the division and get in the playoffs, well, now they're the popular team. It drives me crazy to see bandwagon fans. They're just not true. They're not loyal. And I tell you what really, really drives me crazy the worst is the rich bandwagon fans who can afford the best seats during the postseason. They're the ones who sit right behind home plate, but it's a different matter entirely. You know, this bandwagon season, I always laugh at it, but you know, today happens to be bandwagon day as well for a lot of folks. And I'm not angry with anybody here for showing up, but I know across America there are many people in church today who it's just the bandwagon day well it's Sunday so I guess I better hop on and get going I better go to church today and I realize that for a lot of folks we do this bandwagon Christianity thing for a lot of different reasons for some it's sort of you know it's an obligation I was talking with somebody this last week who made reference that you know just somebody was kind of made to be somewhere happened to be at church they just kind of made to you know I feel obligated I should go well you know, my family goes, or we've been there forever. I kind of grew up in that place. Or, or maybe it's some obligation, or maybe it's a superstition. Well, I don't want to get on God's bad side, so I guess I better show up to church on Sunday and maybe avoid all of that. You know, for others, I hear as, as people become parents, maybe for the, the first time, or their children get a little bit older, and, and I hear this, and I totally understand it, but it sort of breaks my heart as well. That, well, it's good for the kids to be in church, so I guess I'll, I'll, I'll take them and I'll, I'll go with them. And certainly that's true, but still sort of a bandwagon mentality. And for others, it just makes them feel a little better. They, they get a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of God, and maybe come to church a few times and feel a little bit better about themselves. Or maybe, maybe they hear a message from the pastor and life's just kind of better. It's a little bit of a boost. We have a lot of different reasons that, that for folks, bandwagon Christianity is the same. But this series that, that I'm going to be preaching called Commit... Really, it starts with this idea of why are we on this Christian bandwagon to begin with and, and the challenge to get off of it and to truly follow the Lord. But I'll just tell you in this series, I, I'm really not angry at all. I'm passionate about it. I'm very serious about it because it's something I believe that is close to the heart of Jesus that we must be serious about. Jesus was very serious about his call to commitment. 
and not to call to the bandwagon. And so I'm going to preach about this idea. What did Jesus say? What does the Scripture say about what true commitment is to the Lord? And this is not going to be anything novel. I'm not going to pull out anything you've probably never heard before, just so you know. These are going to be things that you may be very familiar with, something that you've heard long ago, but I want you to know that in this, it's not something now, oh, I better live up to that. I've got to follow more rules. This isn't about rules. This is about truly, once you understand the love of Jesus for you, what is the call on your life? And it is to absolute surrender and commitment. And that's what this series will be about. So we'll look at different uh, elements of what Jesus taught, what others in the scripture have taught us. And so our, our goal and, and the challenge in each of these uh, sermons, just so you know, is to identify where is it that our commitment is not 100% to the Lord and then surrender that to him. And you may find that in your life, it's one thing and another's life, it may be something different for you. It may be at home or maybe at school or or at work or wherever that your commitment just is not exactly where it needs to be. And so that's going to be the call. And so this morning, we're going to talk about the idea of bandwagon Christianity. Everybody just sort of can jump on. And, and in America, I'll just let you know, we have a major problem with that. We have a real, real problem with bandwagon Christianity. And I will say that, that especially in small towns toward the south, we have a huge problem with bandwagon Christianity. We call it the Bible Belt. And you, you know that having grown up maybe here in Murray, in Callaway County, that being a Christian is sort of cultural. It's kind of, it's what you do. Going to church is just a part of who you are. You sort of identify yourself with, with where you went to high school and where you go to church. I mean, that's, you're either Murray or Callaway, and, and you went to church in one of the different places, or, or maybe it's your denomination. And yet I realize that even having grown up in Louisville, which is a little bit north of here, but still in Kentucky, this cultural bandwagon type of Christianity is a very serious threat, I think, to, to what Jesus actually called us to. And so I hope that you'll pay attention. I hope that you'll listen. I, I hope that, that this will be something that gets into your heart and into mine, and maybe it's something we can talk about as well. So this morning, how can we know if you're on the Christian bandwagon? None of us here would admit it. None of us here are going to stand up this morning and say, look, I, just before you even go on, let me stop you because I'm, I'm already convicted. I'm on the Christian bandwagon. I need to repent. None of us think we are. And I don't have anybody in mind this morning. I didn't pray specifically for anybody this week, just so you know. You, you were not mentioned by name because I'm targeting you this morning. All right, That's not it. So if I happen to, to make eye contact with you, it's not because I thought of you this week and I think, man, they showed up. Good. All right, I get to talk to Danny. To, no. And so, you know, it, it's not because of that. But I do hope that we'll pay attention. Three signs that you're on the Jesus bandwagon. What are some symptoms of bandwagon Christianity? We're going to find what Jesus said about this in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 26. So if you've got a Bible handy or you can get to the Scripture on your, your mobile device or through the little handout or however, it'll be on the screen as well. I'm going to read this and then go through what Jesus gives us as some of these symptoms bandwagon Christianity. Look at Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Then he said to them all, If anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take of his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will save it. What is a man benefited if he gains the whole world, yet loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and that of the Father and the holy angels. Jesus here lays down really what discipleship is all about. 
What does it mean to follow the Lord? This is really, to me, the core teaching of when Jesus gets right down to the point, you want to follow me, you want to be my disciple, here's what it's all about. He says in verse 23, then, now this follows what comes before it in in Luke chapter 9. Jesus had sent out the disciples. He had told them, take nothing with you. Go only where you're received. And so he's beginning to send them out to equip them. And and then, then Herod, the king, hears about Jesus and his popularity. He actually wonders aloud if maybe John the Baptist had been you know, re, sort, of, sort of remade. Maybe he's been resurrected, but he says, no, I, I beheaded John the Baptist. It can't be him. Who is this guy? And King Herod wants to, wants to see Jesus. He wants to get to know him. He wants to understand about this guy's popularity. And then Jesus feeds the 5,000. And so you see him on the rise Jesus becoming extremely popular. But then to his disciples, he tells them that he's going to have to be killed. And so Jesus, even when he could have asserted himself, even when his popularity could have said, well, let me just see what I can gain in this world, he demonstrated and he taught something very different. He taught them that you're on the Jesus bandwagon. We'll see here as he says to them all, if you want to come with me, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. The first sign of bandwagon Christianity is that your commitment is situational. Your commitment is situational. Then he said to them all, not just the disciples around him, but all the crowd that was gathered there, he looks at all of them and he says, if you want to come with me, if you want to be my disciple, here are the rules of discipleship. It's sort of like every year when I was in college and the coach would gather us together when we first arrived on campus. And so sometime this week would be when we would get together. And we'd gather there in the locker room, and I remember the speech over and over and over again. And he would go over, here's what our program is about. You want to be a part of this, this is what's expected of you. This is what, now that, now that you're on the team, this is what we're going to require of you. And I remember that. And every guy would have to nod his head and understand this is the way that it is. It's kind of like Jesus getting the folks together and saying, look, if you want to be a part of this, here's what it's going to be. This is what it's going to be about. And maybe he would, he would kind of say to them, you know, I know you think maybe this is just a big pep rally, that, that in all the healings and the miracles, hey, that's something great to be a part of. And yeah, absolutely, I, I'd love to be a part of that. Something incredible, obviously. Let me, let me get some of that. But he says, if you really want to follow me, you really want to be my disciple, here's what this is about. And he goes on to tell them that, first of all, you must deny yourself. Your situation, your, your commitment is situational, he says, if you're unwilling to deny yourself. And he's not talking about just denying yourself certain things. Verse 23 says, he must deny himself, not yourself of certain things. Now, we're good, I'm good at denying myself certain things if I think that that's, well, okay, I guess I don't need to do that anymore if that's what God says of me, that I'm not supposed to do. So, for example, like during the Lent season or maybe because you, you run into the pastor somewhere, okay, well, I'm not going to do that. I won't be caught doing those things. Or I'm going to give up this or that. We're good at these situational commitments. When I'm at church or when I'm around someone from church or when my parents are here or because there's a chance I'll get caught or when the situation calls for it, I know then what a Christian is supposed to act like. And we're pretty good at those things. But that's not at all what Jesus meant. Not even close to what he meant. When he says to deny himself, he simply means to renounce your own agenda in life. It's denial of of self, not just things that you like, but yourself entirely. This is hard. I'm not sure how much maybe we've been taught this. 
And I don't mean just we as Elm Grove, but just we as American Christians, how much we've been taught that Christianity is about denial of self. We like to Americanize it. I'll get to more of that in just a minute. But this is about renouncing your own agenda, laying down your self-righteousness, what you can become on your own, your self-sufficiency and self-determination and self-assuredness. The truth is that you, you can't really come to Jesus. You can't ever be more than just a bandwagon Christian if you're not willing to deny yourself. And so you'll know your, your commitment is situational if you're, if you're committed to a brand of Christianity that, that always just fits your agenda. Now we like Jesus when He fits into what we want in our lives and there's really nothing else required of us. We don't have to give anything up. We like that kind of Jesus. A tame, sort of sit on the shelf, just smile at me in the picture, Jesus. That's what we like. But if your brand of Christianity suits you all the time, if your brand of Christianity is focused on meeting your needs and your desires, odds are you're on the Jesus bandwagon. I don't say that again because I'm angry. I just say it because that's what Jesus said. So it's time for us to stop trying to win popularity contests. It's time for us to pay no attention to our own desires, to stop seeking self-fulfillment through our Christianity, and simply to turn ourselves over to Jesus and say, what would you have me do? How would you have me live? What today is it, Lord, that I need to be about because of you? The way this is written in the tense that's used in the actual original language is that this denial of self is a once and for all commitment that has continual effects in your life. So I wonder, maybe for some, the, the challenge that we need to hear this morning is to say, have you truly denied yourself? But have you laid yourself down in order to come to Jesus? And you say, well, he's kind of an add-on. That's not what Jesus says at all. Have you absolutely denied yourself? He says, deny yourself, and then he says he will take up his cross. The person who wants to follow Jesus would take up his cross. Now, those who were listening would immediately have thought of a criminal on a one-way street to his execution. It, it would not have been something that they thought of in a good way. They would have thought of people being in pain and humiliated and a crowd standing, lining the road and yelling and screaming and throwing things at them. And that's exactly what Jesus meant for them to understand. Imagine yourself there for just a second. And Jesus has just fed 5,000 people. Herod, the king even, is kind of hearing about Jesus. and he's this, he's this national, becoming a national figure, we think. You know, if, if he were living in today's world, he'd be trending on Twitter. He would be on all of, the, of all of the talk shows. He would be interviewed all of the time. And Jesus gathers everybody together and says, Look, let me, let me just tell you, if you want to come with me, you want to go where I'm going, you want to follow me, deny yourself, and then act like a dead man. March on to your execution. Consider this world dead to you, he says. Take up your cross. Carry it with you everywhere you go. Daily, he says. It's not a weekend hobby. Identification with the cross is the one that Jesus died on. And I, I found this little analogy this week that I thought was pretty interesting. You know, I have over in, in my, my bedroom a little jewelry box. I have a, a gold chain with a cross on it that I used to wear all the time. And now it, I don't really like wearing anything around my neck. But when I played baseball, I would wear it all the time. And I had my number and I had a cross on there. You've probably seen baseball players do that. I, I found the analogy this week that, that a lot of folks will, will think of the cross and they'll think of it's, it's sort of on a gold chain. It's something that I wear and it looks pretty. It's, it's, it's attractive. It's something that shines and so on. Jesus had none of that in mind. When he said, take up your cross, it wasn't something that he thought would make us look better. It was something that, that we would have to be humiliated by. 
And so I'm not saying go rip off the cross, off the chain, you know, from your neck. That's not my point. But the idea being that our, our Christianity is situational when we're just worried about if it makes us look good. And as I said, in America, that's a big problem. Because we have in some cultures, in some towns in America, that, that as long as it makes you look good, well, that's good enough. But when you start getting radical about your commitment, that's when we have problems. So Jesus didn't mean at all that Christianity is for you or that following Him is for you only if it makes you look good. Because taking up the cross when He said this to them, it would have been a complete separation from the world and its values and its lifestyle. A whole new way of thinking prepared to meet whatever criticism and even death as we see across our world today many Christians being murdered for their faith. That's the commitment. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. It's not situational. Follow me, he says, which is conforming to his example in all things. This is imperative in the tense that it's used, and it's active, which means it's continual. Day by day, moment by moment. To follow someone means to move in the same direction as them all the time. It's sort of like when you were a kid... And you would, you would mess around with somebody and you'd, you'd mimic everything they'd do. You'd repeat all their words. My kids love to do this and annoy each other. One will start to say something and the other will just echo it for, you know, for 20 minutes. Until, until finally, the other day, one of them, uh, knowing this is going on, finally starts putting it in the first person to make the other person say, I'm stupid. I'm an idiot. I don't know what I'm talking about. And so, you know, they're mimicking each other. But really, that's what Jesus is talking about. It's sort of like you're walking in the footsteps. You've got someone right in front of you, and every time they take a step, that's when you take a step. And so it's sort of, it, it, we can use the childish games as a, as a way to understand this, but that's what Jesus says. Look, you need to mimic. You need to imitate. You need to walk right behind me, almost as if as soon as I pick up my foot, yours is right under me. Wholeheartedly, he says. This is more than a student in a classroom who learns by watching the teacher lecture and put things up on the board, this is an apprenticeship where you live and you work with the master and you begin to do and to think and to expect and operate the way he does. You'll know your commitment is situational if, you, if your Christianity doesn't expect anything from you. If there's no real change that's happening in your life, if you're not truly becoming like Jesus... You'll know it's situational. The first sign of bandwagon Christianity is that your commitment is situational. The second sign is that you remain very comfortable in the world. Verses 24 and 25 give us an indication of this. Jesus said, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. The word save there means to preserve or to rescue or to keep it from harm. To hang on to what you consider most valuable or most real. And the word life there just means your soul, just, just your very life. And so he says, if, you're, if this is who you are, if you're the person who's just going to, I'm going to save, I'm going to preserve myself at all costs, he's talking about your focus is here and now in the world, and you're very, very comfortable there. Your focus is here and now. You're going to get everything out of this world that you possibly can. You value only what you can see. And, and unfortunately, you're just going along with what everybody else does, because this is the way of the world. Looks can deceive, though, because you can do everything to gain advancement and self-promotion and achieve all of your goals, and then when it's all said and done, he says, whoever wants to save his life, whoever holds on to this world, whoever's really comfortable here, he says, will lose it. And that word, when he uses lose, it's a different word from later on. When he says lose, that simply means you'll face the punishment of hell. 
There's no, there's, he doesn't pull any punches there. He says, you're going to face judgment apart from Jesus, and you'll wind up in hell. If your focus is only on the here and now, if your focus is on this life alone, then Jesus says you'll face the judgment. Self brings death. Self fails to deliver what it seems to promise. But then he says, instead of being really comfortable in what he says, but, but whoever loses his life, that's the word lose there means self-denial. Whoever denies himself, whoever turns loose of this life, will save it. Will get what you actually have wanted all along. You will save your life both now and later. He goes on to, to give us a rhetorical question in verse 25, which is one of my favorite verses. He says, what is a man benefited if he gains the whole world? He says, what good is it if on a large scale or a small scale you get everything you ever wanted? And trust me, none of us would admit maybe that that's all I'm really concerned about. I've got a list of things, some goals, some, a life plan that I'm just trying to achieve. And you know what? Honestly, if I, if I can do that stuff, I'll feel pretty good about things. Now, we, we do that. And none of us would admit it here in church because that doesn't sound spiritual. It sounds really selfish. Jesus says if you could do all of those things, if you could get all you ever wanted, if you could have the world by the tail, if you could reach all your stated and unstated goals, if you could avoid everything that's unpleasant in life, and yet lose or forfeit yourself, he says, what good is it? What have you accomplished? It's a rhetorical question. The answer, obviously, is nothing. I've accomplished nothing. But if you lose or forfeit yourself in the end, only to realize you've been playing by the wrong scoreboard all along, only to realize that the team that you've amassed doesn't qualify for what Jesus is calling you to, you lose on the only scoreboard that matters. You realize that there's only one scoreboard in life that actually matters. And that is the one that pits your sin against Jesus Christ. That's it. And your sin, if pitted against you, if you are playing against your sin, guess what? You lose. Unless you will give your life and take yourself out of the game, if you will, and put Jesus in your place like he did on the cross, that's the only scoreboard that matters. Did Jesus win the battle for your sin and did you submit your life to him as a result of that? Jesus says you can gain everything, but you can't purchase your soul. You realize that you could have all the wealth in this world. I, I was looking around on, on an app, that, uh, and I get curious every once in a while, just, just about uh, homes around here in Murray. How much do they cost? I go, we, we live in the parsonage, and, and so uh, the Lord's blessed us greatly. The church owns that. We, we, uh, we, we get to live there. It's a tremendous blessing to us. So I get curious. I wonder, you know, how much how much do things you know cost? We haven't we haven't owned a home now in quite a while, and so I was just curious. And I started to look around at different homes, and there's one down the lake that's like for sale over a million dollars or something crazy. And I looked at the monthly price, and I thought, I'm going to pastor two churches. But I'm going to buy that one. But you know, it's 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 interesting. You can have all those nice things, and and some of us boy, we're so blessed. But do you realize that God? He's not really impressed with even the richest people in the world because the Bible tells us God owns it all anyway. And there's no way that no matter what you amass, no matter what you do, no matter how many degrees hang on your wall, that when you get to the end of your life and you stand before the Lord, God's not going to say, man, you were awesome. You had it all. Come on in. That's exactly what I wanted for you. He, all he's going to do is to look at you and and say, did he know Jesus? Did, did she give her life to the Lord? Not did she accomplish a lot of things. Did she reach her life plan? 
Did that five-year program, how about those goals that you wrote down and even broke into certain steps? Did you accomplish all that stuff? You know what? All of that in and of itself is not bad unless we use that to replace Jesus in our lives. He says you can get to the end of your life and have gained the whole world, but it's a horrible trade-off if you forfeit your soul. You'll know you're on the Jesus bandwagon if you remain very very comfortable in this world. If, if your version of Christianity allows you to avoid anything that's unpleasant, if it allows you just to blend in, if it allows you just to be nice, if it allows you to have the world by the tail. Now let me tell you this, God may give you tremendous influence in this world and praise God if He does, use it for His glory. But there must be, because if the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, this has to be, there must be, if you're a true believer in Jesus, something inside of you that says, I'm still a little bit uncomfortable in this world. This is still not my home. These are still not my people, if you will. I am still a child of God, and this is not where I need to feel most comfortable. I need to feel most comfortable in the presence of Jesus wherever that takes me and however that calls me to live. Bandwagon Christianity is situational. It's very comfortable in the world. And thirdly, you'll know you're on this Christian bandwagon if you adjust to the temperature of society. Jesus, in verse 26 makes it very, very clear. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, that ashamed word, that means you refuse to own. Whoever refuses to own me and my words, he says. Now, I'll say this, you can't separate the man and the message. And we like to do this in our world today. We like to say, well, uh, you know, it appears that Jesus was just a really nice teacher. He taught some really good moral things. He's somebody that you ought to listen to until he claims to be God himself and that there's no other way for salvation except through him. Well, yeah, but look what he did. He, he, you know, he sat and, and, and welcomed everybody. Yes, he did. And he also said that no one comes to the Father except through him. You can't separate the man and the message. You can't love one or the other. You can't support one or the other. Jesus says, you must not be ashamed. You must not disown me in any way. He's not addressing a lack of courage, but he's addressing those folks who are unwilling to deny themselves and take up their crosses and follow him. He says, if in front of people, (laughs) you're not going to own me, guess what? When I come in judgment, he says, verse 26, the Son of Man will be ashamed, will not own him, when he comes in his glory and that of the Father and the holy angels. That's a tough teaching. And this is not talking about a one-time thing where I back down and I... You know, I, I just didn't live for the Lord in that situation. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about, have you denied yourself? Have you taken up your cross daily? And are you truly following him? It's not about lack of courage, but an unwillingness to do those things. The Son of Man, he says, will be ashamed. Jesus will disown us if we have disowned him here. If we are not believers in him here, there's no second chance in the afterlife. There's no hope that, well, maybe somebody can get me out. There's no hope that maybe the good will outweigh the bad. There's none of that. The final word is that of Jesus at judgment. The final word is not what's written about you in the paper upon your death. The final word is not what I say about you at your funeral. And I'm I'm going to try to make you sound good. Really good. Even if you weren't. I'm going to try to make you sound really, really good, you know? I, I did a funeral once, and somebody came to me before and said, Now, make him sound good, but not too good. Okay. You know, but that's not even the final word. I mean, I could stand up at your funeral, as I've stood up at others' funerals, and say all kinds of things about you, but guess what? I'm not your judge. 
Jesus Christ alone is your judge. You better be worried about what he has to say about you. I hope I can say wonderful, great things about all of us. I hope that at my funeral somebody will say wonderful, great things about me. But you know what? None of that matters because when I stand before Jesus, the only word who's going to be final is not mine, not the preacher's, it's going to be his. That's it. So you and I had best be concerned not about what everybody else says about us and what everybody else thinks about us, but what will Jesus say when we stand before him at judgment? He says if you're just constantly adjusting to the temperature of society, if in this situation it's not exactly real popular to stand up for what biblical truth is all about, so you back down and you don't know about that, well, society seems to be going this way. Here's kind of the way of things. So I guess that's probably the way I should think too. Everybody seems to sort of be along these lines and doing these things and saying these things. So that's how I follow. If that's your version of Christianity and you are ashamed of Jesus in front of people, guess what? It's likely you're on the Christian bandwagon. And according to Jesus, it's likely you don't know him. I wish I didn't have to tell you that. But it's true. The biggest problem, as we see here in verses 23 to 26 as a whole, the biggest problem with bandwagon Christianity is that Jesus doesn't allow it. It's not me. I'm not going to tell you, well, you've just come to Sunday school more, you just serve in the nursery more, or show up at trunk or treat, or bring some cookies or some appetizers for those kids in, in the college, then everything will be fine. You'll check off all my rules, and, and everything will be fine. And I promise at your funeral, I'll say that you brought cookies, and everything will be good. The biggest problem with bandwagon Christianity is that Jesus doesn't allow it. I and mean, we see that with what he's saying. He said, look, all of you that have gathered together because so many great things are happening, all these healings and all these miracles, and I've fed 5,000 people... You're chasing the wrong things. You're seeking me for the wrong thing. He said, if you want to follow me, this ain't a bandwagon thing. He doesn't allow it in this teaching, and he doesn't allow it anywhere. Scripture does not allow for any kind of half-hearted commitment to the Lord. doesn't. Like I said, I'm not angry, because I have to preach this sermon to myself all week before I preach it to you, and so I'm convicted by it. But it just doesn't. Jesus doesn't allow bandwagon Christianity. And so, the question is, are you truly committed or just riding on the bandwagon? And, and, and I'm not calling everybody, if you sinned this week, well, you've got to get resaved all over again. That's not what I'm talking about. But take yourself before the Lord this morning and, and say, you know, hey, Lord, am, am I truly, I mean, I, I, Really, am I committed to you or not? Is this a 100% deal for me? Yes, I'm still going to sin. And understand that I'm not talking about sinless perfection. But Lord, or, or, or is this just been a bandwagon, bandwagon ride for me? But honestly, God, tell me. I, I, I want in just a moment, I know we have some, some young people in, in the audience. And, I, and I'm going I'm to spend some time uh, right after we sing. And I'm going to close the service this way by praying for, for our young people. Um, i I'd tell you just a little bit about my story. When, when I was in middle school and through high school, that's really where my commitment to the Lord was solidified. 
because I recognized that it could no longer be a bandwagon kind of thing. You know, I, I was I was saved when I was eight years old, and I was baptized soon thereafter. And my commitment was very serious from the beginning. It wasn't one of those deals where I felt later in life, well, I didn't really, that didn't mean anything to me. But I, I, there was something about going through the, the, the testing by fire that was for me, middle school and high school, on who am I going to be and how am I going to be committed. And this morning, I know we've, like I said, we, we may not have droves and droves of young people here in this service. We've got some middle school, some high school, some college age folks who I, I just I want to pray for you. And, and, and you may not have thought this sermon was for you the whole time, but it's been for you the whole time. Because if you can get to the point now where you say, I'm, no, I'm not going to ride the bandwagon. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be all in. I, I'm going to be 100% committed. I don't know what all that means yet, but that's my commitment today. And I'm going to find some spiritual mentors. I'm going to find some godly people in my life who can help me stay where I need to be. And I'm going to commit myself to the Lord not based upon situations. I'm going to commit myself to the Lord not based upon the temperature of society. And and I'm going to commit myself to the Lord to where I'm no longer going to be comfortable in this world. That's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy at all. In fact, it will be the most difficult thing that you ever do. And if you want something that won't require anything of you, if you want something that you can be a coward with then young people, let me tell you, you go live like the rest of the world because it takes no courage to do that whatsoever. None. Not an ounce. But when Jesus calls you to discipleship, it's going to take courage. It's going to take something inside of you that you probably don't even feel like you have right now. It's going to take the Holy Spirit filling you on a daily basis. And I just want to pray for you at the end of the service. I'm not going to try to embarrass you. Not anything like that. I'm not going to make you make a speech or say anything. But I, just so you know, I'm going, to, I'm going to ask our young people, after we sing that last song, to gather right here with me. And anybody who wants to come with them, anybody who says, I, don't, I may not even know these people, but I'm going to pray for them, or, you know what, I need to make my own commitment to the Lord today too. And I'm going to gather right there. I'm going to have you pray for me as well. That's what we're going to do to close the service. That... I realize that if we can help young people, if we can help to capture their commitment and and help to to push them and spur them on, then we've actually done something. Because if all we've heard this morning is a sermon, well, can he be committed to the Lord? Maybe it's not going to last. Bandwagon Christianity isn't allowed by the Lord. And my prayer for me and for my family, you and your family, for us as a church, is that we will say it's not for us either. We're not going to be on the Christian bandwagon. We're going to do all that God asks us to do. Here's what I'd like for us to do. Dan, if you would, let's prepare for that last song. The song is, I'd Rather Have Jesus. And I'm going to ask you in just a moment to stand and and to sing that as a true commitment to the Lord. There are a lot of things you can have in this world, but would you rather... Have Jesus. And then when we get done, just so you know, I'm going to have our young people, middle school, high school, college age, anybody else that wants me to pray for you, we're going to gather just right there in the middle. I'm going to ask you to come on down front, just right there in the middle. And I really do. I, I, I want you to join me. And I'm going to pray for you, and then we'll be dismissed. Let's stand together and we'll sing.